Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome. We are so glad that you are here with us today to hear another, hopefully, hopefully great interview. I, I think it's a great interview. I mean, you know, like, I mean, the, the subject, the person we talked to is incredible. So um, I mean, hopefully like this one is great or like all the rest were great. Which one are you referring to? For hopefully like all oh. of them are good. Oh, now I don't even know. Could be yeah, either way. Wow. I feel like yeah. I just got like caught in a I mean, trap there. I think this one's oh. pretty. I think this one's pretty good. So it's it just is. a question of are all of them good? All of them great. Are they equal? It's like your children. You love them all equally, right? That's, a, that's what we tell them. Yeah. <laughs> oh well. So speaking of love, um, I have an interesting question for you. Ready? What is your love language? you know, the five love languages? Yeah. What are the five? Do you, do you recall? Oh my goodness. Okay. Let's see. Acts of service, quality time, gifts, words of affirmation. Oh, I'm missing one. What is the fifth one? Uh, like affection or physical touch? Oh, affection, physical touch. Exactly. Yes. Um, well, mine is, I feel like a bad person for this, but um, mine is acts of service, but it means a lot to me when people do things for me. It sounds terrible, right? Um, oh. But especially with my spouse where I'm like, oh, the trash, you took it out. That's so, that's so hot. You know, <laughs> um, but what's your, I don't think I know yours, which I guess. Uh, sure. Yes. What do you think mine is? Is uh, words of affirmation. That's my guess. No, I'm a, no. I'm a quality time person. Like really? spend time with people. Yeah. So, oh, I mean, like my favorite thing is that like sometimes like in the evenings, Ryan will go for a walk. We don't have to talk to each other, but we're with each other and Aww. we just go like and walk the dogs and stuff like that. So yeah, that's no, nice. totally a quality time person. I feel like that's the nicest one. That's, yeah. Oh, oh good. I'm glad selfish. I'm nice about something <laughs> in my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least one thing. That's I mean, it. I also am an introvert, so I like quality time with myself, <laughs> just by myself too. So, <laughs> um, but that's well, different entirely. I think about like quality time where we like leave you alone. Is that not the quality that time is where we also considered quality time? Agree for not me. to speak yeah, to you. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. No. But the reason I mean the reason to ask talk about that is that you know showing love is a great way to show people support and. We are interviewing Barb Kalura this week of Resolve, and a big, huge part of Resolve's mission is showing support for people who are going through infertility. So um, find out somebody's love language and show it to them this week, And but after you listen to Barb, of course. Welcome, Barb Kalura, to the show, president and CEO of Resolve. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks. So, Barb, I don't know that many people know your background or what led you to become the the CEO and president of Resolve. Do you want to start by by telling us kind of a little bit about who you are and your journey to get to that position? Absolutely. It's kind of ironic because just last night I had dinner with um, seven other women, and we all met through Resolve here in the Washington, D.C. area as volunteers. Uh, my husband and I, we experienced infertility. I did not find Resolve during um, medical treatment. I found it after, and I started seeing a mental health professional um, that I found here in the D.C. area who specialized in infertility issues. And I um, 
I, I, I actually, you know, hit a really low point in my infertility family building journey and needed that support. And she really encouraged me to seek out resolve. And she said, look, I think they're a great organization. They have a lot of great resources. They have a lot of things going on here in the D.C. area. Why don't you check them out? And I did. And my husband and I really became consumers of all of the things that Resolve had to offer here in the D.C. area at the time. We went to some support groups. We went to some educational programming. I gained a lot of information from their um, website and so forth. And I started then volunteering for Resolve. And this was in 2000. And I was a volunteer for four years. And then the um, headquarters office moved from Massachusetts to the Washington, D.C. area. So at the time, when I was doing all that interaction with Resolve in D.C., we were actually considered a chapter of Resolve National. And so then um, the national office moved to the D.C. area. And uh, the CEO at the time called me up and he said, would you like to come in and talk about coming on staff. And I did. Were you working at the time? I had, um, I was doing some consulting work and, but I was really doing a lot of volunteering for Resolve. I laughed because my husband at the time said, okay, wait a minute, you're volunteering, oh, about 30 hours a week. And now they're going to like pay you to work 40 hours a week? I don't think, I don't even think we need to discuss this. Like this sounds like a good idea. No brainer. And I joined, yeah, I joined. What um, were you doing? Sorry. What were you doing volunteering? Were you leading support groups or? I was, I never actually led a support group. I was doing all kinds of other things. We, you know, we had a website, we had a newsletter, we had educational programming. And so at one point I was sort of president of the chapter. At another point I was helping organize our, our educational events. I was doing outreach with professionals. And these women that I had dinner with last night, we all worked as volunteers and we're all professional, have other lives and jobs. And yet we all came together um, just doing this, this thing that we loved so much. So when I first joined the Resolve staff, I actually managed our volunteers around the country. So it was super, super fitting and great for me because here I had been a volunteer and now I got to interact and, and manage our hundreds and hundreds of volunteers around the country. But you'll love this. I was on the job for one week and we had a strategic planning meeting that I wasn't part of the planning, but I attended. And over that weekend, the board decided to completely close our chapters and end our <gasps> chapter structure. Oh, no. And I was, I remember I came home and I said to my husband, okay, I've worked there a week and my entire job has completely changed because now we don't have these chapters. Now we're not going to have these chapters anymore. So, um, so I, and like my first two years, all I did was work on this huge transition for the organization of, of moving away from a a chapter um, structure and a chapter network. So it was, it's been, um, now I've been at Resolve for 15 years this month and, uh, so that was that was a long time ago, and um, but you know I I love the organization. It helped my husband and I so much, and we have our we have our son. Um, we 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 came to the decision to do an adoption and build our family through adoption. Um, we uh, my son is is eighteen. He's freshman in college. 
And I credit, you know, Resolve for being a parent. And I love what we do. And I love the people I met when I volunteered. And I know how the organization has helped so many. So I'm privileged and just honored to have um, the job that I have. And I get to do it every day. That's amazing. And just a little bit more on your background. What what were you consulting? I mean, did any of your background kind of feed into running a national organization helping those with infertility? Well, in all honesty, <laughs> uh, I would say no. In fact, I tell people that my staff has far more um, experience uh, doing what they do than I do. I have a master's in international affairs. I have worked overseas. Oh, I've wow. done, uh, when I came back to the U.S., I got into human resources uh, specializing in recruiting. I had a, a headhunting firm. So oh, wow. um, I have worked for a couple of nonprofits in there, but um, certainly I'm not at, at, in the health space, not at this level. And, uh, and I, I just, um, you know, felt really honored that the board asked me to serve. And, uh, and here mm-hmm. I've been in this role for, um, Okay, how long have I been in this role? I was about to say, how long role? have you been in this role? <laughs> yeah, I've been in this role for 12 years. Wow. And it sounds like you were going through this journey for a lot of the time that you were volunteering and working. When in that, kind of in, when you were working with Resolve, did you go with adoption? Well, I I felt... I felt like I was in a good place emotionally when we made the decision that we were going to do an international adoption. And I, I sent off my paperwork, you know, I had already picked an agency, sent off my first round of paperwork. And then I felt like I could start giving back. So I actually started volunteering for Resolve before we even brought our son home. Um, But I was just in a different place. I was finally, I wasn't like, consuming everything. I was sort of like, okay, I, I think I'm resolved, which I didn't even know that word at the time. <laughs> and, and I could, I could turn that corner where now I felt like I could give back and, um, and help the organization. And so, you know, he, my son in the midst of there came home and, and then all of a sudden, you know, I've, I've got these, these other resolved friends and, and we're all in different places and, uh, and, and so seeing that journey. So it's fun because they've, you know, they've known me since before I brought mm-hmm. my son home and, you know, we're showing pictures last night and it's one mm-hmm. of my girlfriends has kids from IVF and two or three of them there last night also built their family through adoption and, and, um, another, um, has three kids now. And, and so it was just, it's, we're all, you know, we all, um, are, got there um, in very different ways and in our own timeline. And that's really how you have to approach this journey. And you have to just say, look, what worked for me isn't going to work for you. You can't tell people what to do. Uh, But being there to support them and keep them um, moving forward, I think is really what's key. And I think that's important and fascinating for people to remember that there are so many choices and options about how to become a parent. And it's not all, you know, IVF, that there is foster care and adoption. Did you guys go through those treatments before you before you turned to adoption? Did you? Yes, we had. Yes, we had. We had done IVF and uh, it did not work. And Mm -hmm. I. 
thought it was going to work. And I told everybody we were doing it because I just, and then I thought, okay, that was really dumb because now I have to go back and tell everyone it didn't work. And I'm really like not in a good place. And I got depressed. I got Mm. very depressed. And, you know, I had my husband and other friends tell me you need to get help. And I did. At the time you felt overwhelmingly alone. And now I'm sure looking back and dealing, being with resolve, you realize how everyone feels that way that, you know, like everyone who goes, they get that excitement. Like I'm going to tell the whole world because we're, we're here, we're taking a positive step. And then so many people have to backtrack and go through depression and things like, like that's one of the great things about resolve now is it's helping bring awareness and let so many more people be able to share that journey with other people who have been through it. But I'm sure for you at the time that that felt very lonely. It, it, I didn't know I felt lonely until everything came crashing down. And I remember walking into a resolve educational event and there were like a hundred people there I was shocked. I was like, who are all these people? Oh my God. I I had the classic, I thought I was the only one, even though I was very open about it. And because I was open about it, people would come out up to me or they'd, you know, secretly catch me after a meeting and they'd be like, I'm going through it too. And I, and I never said to them, well, why are you whispering? And why didn't you say that in the meeting? I just was like, (laughs) Oh, you know, I hope it's going great and blah, blah, blah. And then I, it, you know, anyway, it was shocking to me when I realized how prevalent this was. And, uh, and, and then I was, I, I really felt, wow. And you know, when I felt alone, Jen, was when it wasn't going well for me and I, I didn't know what to do. That's when I felt really alone. Like when I was in cycle, I was really positive and yeah. I, I, I don't know, I didn't feel like I needed help. And, but I did, but I didn't know that. And then when it, when it all went, you know, south, I, um, I, I, I was, I was miserable and I was very wow. much all alone. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Cause you don't know how to reach out. And I, I and again, that's why I say, that's why things like resolve is so it helps people know, at least even if they still don't know how to reach out or have the willingness to reach out, they know it's starting to bring more openness and awareness that there are resources to reach out to. When, when you hit that loneliness in that yep. point. Yeah. Right. Can I ask how many, how many rounds, how many treatments, how long did it take before you started looking at other options? Well, I was kind of a unique case in that I overstimulated. So they, they oh. retrieved a very, very, very large number of eggs from me and many of them fertilized. And so I ended up doing, um, four different rounds of frozen embryo transfers, just working through all my frozen embryos. And this was back, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have, um, you know, any kind of testing on those embryos. Uh, We didn't know, you know, I was young. We didn't know why I wasn't getting pregnant. And, and, were, uh, and were they transferring a large number of embryos? And I was going to ask the scary question is how many were they transferring? Yeah. Okay, ladies, I'm glad you're sitting down (laughs) because... The last round, they transferred five. Wow! And uh, none of uh, none, nothing took. So I, you know, I could have gone back and done a quote unquote fresh cycle, which Mm -hmm. I never did. But I was done. I was I was emotionally spent, and and I had health insurance for it. Oh wow! I was still young. I 
could have, you know, I definitely, you know, every doctor probably that I would have ever seen even for a second or third or fourth opinion would say, well, we need to do a fresh cycle because at the time, frozen embryo transfers were not like they are today in terms of the mm. success. It was, yeah. it was so, but, but I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't do it. And yeah. I, 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 that was it. And it wasn't until I started going to resolve um, activities that I started seeing that there were other options. And I had to really, huh. I had to really face, do I want to be a mom? Because all of this time, it was all about a positive pregnancy test. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about being pregnant or having a baby. <laughs> I was just, get me to a positive pregnancy test. And so your yeah. mind gets kind of warped to think that I actually had to go to a therapist to find out if I really wanted to be a mom. I mean, that's pretty sick. So um, I got to the point where I said to my husband, I do want to be a mom. And, yeah. and I think we need to start looking at adoption because I need something that's 100%. I need mm. to know that this is going to happen. And and so that's the that's what the, the emotional journey that some some people have to go through. And how was how is he doing? Was he I mean I'm sure he was supportive, right? But he was probably kind of suffering too. He was he made it very clear I did not marry you you know, to have kids and to be a parent. Oh, I married yeah. you because, you know, I, you. I wanted yeah. to spend my life. I think that mm-hmm. if I had said to him, you know, I can't do adoption or whatever, I, I think he would have been like, okay, great. I, I really do. I I yeah. did not feel that he was pressuring me. I think he was just more upset that he could, this is the typical you know, yeah, what you hear. He couldn't right. help me. He couldn't fix. Being helpless. Yeah. yeah. He couldn't fix what I was going through. And he yeah. vividly saw what I was going through. Wow. Yeah. He he will tell you that it the whole thing really sucked. You know, he'll just tell you. <laughs> right? The whole thing just really stunk. Yeah. Wow. So why international adoption? Did you look at and how did you choose the country? Kind of how did that decision process go? I went through, um, I, I just, I went through a lot. I read a lot. Um, Resolve had some really great programming. I talked to people who had done domestic international. Chris and I, my husband and I really talked about where we were at. I I, I read personal stories, most of it in the Resolve. Um, at the time they had a like a, a newsletter and I, I just tried to put myself into those different environments and I could see, I could see myself doing international more than I could see, um, domestic. And then I, I, can I I ask why, what kind of pros and cons? You know, I, at the time I, I just was uncomfortable with the thought of like having a relationship with the birth parents, Mm. which I feel totally differently about now being a parent and, 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 and so forth. But, but again, at the time that was something that didn't seem like it would fit well with us. I, um, I didn't have, we didn't have any issues with, you know, adopting from another race or, or, or culture. So we were open to that. And I think that I just, I, um, I don't know, maybe it was because I had lived overseas. I'd done international things and that, that just, 
was more appealing. Um, so where did I, you live internationally and what country did you choose for adoption? Well, my husband and I met in Athens, Greece. We both oh, lived in Greece. And we met there. Is he Greek or is he American? No, he's not. He <laughs> was in the U.S. US uh, he was in the military station oh, in Greece. Yeah. But um I, uh, we, we chose Guatemala. I had gone to, um, I'd done some research. I talked to, um, there was a, a really, uh, well-known pediatrician who was doing a lot of international adoption work here in the DC area. He gave a seminar. Um, I went to that and I just, I, we kind of narrowed it down, you know, at the time, China, Russia, um, Guatemala were all, equally, and Korea were all equally, you know, prevalent. Um, Guatemala, uh, I just got really good feedback on in terms of the health of the babies. They were not, um, yeah. and Korea too, they're not in, they're not in an orphanage. Oh. They're in foster care okay. and um, they um, tend to, you know, not have some of the other, you know, fetal alcohol, chronic things. And yeah. very good chance, unlike China, that you're going to have some information on the birth parents so uh, we then talked to a bunch of people who had adopted from different countries, and we just again kept getting drawn to Guatemala. Yeah, and um, that's what we did. My son was five months old when we brought him home, and mm. uh, there you go. Yeah, and have you been back to Guatemala with him? No, no. We plan to, but it just hasn't. It hasn't been. Something I want him to be in the right place, uh, and and uh, you know, again, have read about this and not not to do that. To uh, I think once you hit like 10 years old, then you know, you're kind of like you got to wait till they're an adult. Mm -hmm. You know, if we had brought him when he was younger, he would have been like, Oh, this is a fun country, but that all of the you know, just dealing with the poverty, dealing with all of that, um, and and you know. I think is going to be something that he's got to be in a good ready. place to be ready to do. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, thank you for sharing all of that. I feel so many people are kind of in that place trying to figure out what to do. And it's good to hear other people's stories of where where they get to that resolution to resolve, right? So absolutely. Tell us about resolve. For though, think of the listeners who know nothing about resolve. Where would you start to explain what resolve is and what you do? Well, that's a great question. When you think about a patient advocacy organization, which is what resolve is, you think of maybe like an American Heart Association or American Cancer Society or Alzheimer's or diabetes. Yeah, those are big names, big diseases, um, but they are actually the exact same kind of organization as Resolve is. In fact, I'm in a, I'm in an, I'm I'm a member of an organization with all those other organizations. Oh, and, and I didn't know uh, that. I didn't know that was a thing. So there's like right. yeah. profits, and there's yeah. like there's a bigger. What is that? Can I ask? What's it's the? Called an, it's, yeah, it's called the National Health Council. Oh, and the cool. National Health Council is based here in D.C. And there are about. 55 nonprofits, we call them voluntary health organizations, and every one of us serves a community of people with a different health condition, a disease, what have you. So, and I, all the organizations I just named are part of it, as well as all the other like big ones that you, that you may know of, but, um, and small ones. And so Resolve is, is one of those. So 
what that tells you is that we are the national organization um, for that um, community of people with infertility and people who are struggling to build their family. Uh, what and, we do, at our, go ahead. Oh, can I ask, in terms of size and kind of prevalence, I mean, I, as a little bit of an insider, I feel like we are huge, right? In terms of how many people suffer from infertility. How does infertility compare to, you know, the cancer organizations, for example, or the heart associations? Well, um, so I'm, I'm just going to give you some answers, which may not be what you're asking, but <laughs> we, you know, we, we use, um, a number that's, um, from, um, something called the, um, survey of family growth. It's, it's out of CDC and it's a number of 7.3 million America. It's actually 7.3 million women of, of reproductive age who are dealing with infertility issues. That doesn't mean they've um, gone and done IVF. That just means they are, are dealing with some infertility issues. So our, the prevalence, that's 12% of, of, of people of reproductive age. So when you think about then the organization supporting those people, we're about a $2 million organization in terms of annual revenue. Um, some of those other organizations are huge. And, and there are other, like leukemia, lymphoma, there are other conditions that are, have fewer um, people with prevalence, but are far, 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 far bigger than, than we might be um, for a whole variety of reasons. But we are generally uh, considered very small given the number of people that we have to serve. And here's another really interesting thing. One of the things that, that we do in our space is you, you take your organization's annual revenue and you divide it by the number of people that have that condition. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a data point. It doesn't really give you, tell you much, but it's a data point that says, sure. this is how much we have per person um, who have this condition. And, um, uh, the you know the last time I checked, we were less than two million. We were about one point six, one point seven million, and we had twenty cents. Oh, uh, so we, I was thinking had, it, had to be, it had to be like pennies on the dollar. That yeah, you know, and my people, sometimes yeah. sometimes in meetings, I've for shock purposes, I will literally open up my purse and I'll take out my wallet and I'll put two dimes on the table. I did this one year oh. at a meeting with with some folks, and I put two dimes on the table, and I go, that's how much resolve has for every person with infertility. Yeah. And you just kind of sit there and you stare at those two little dimes. So, um, mm-hmm. so that's really inadequate. I mean, overall yeah. our, our space is woefully, woefully, woefully underfunded uh, given, you know, what we're tasked to do. Now the good news is we announced a partnership with ASRM this year and they are providing us um, a grant um, for three years, and it has allowed us to hire some staff and to grow some of our programming because honestly, we're we're expected to do so much, and we just yeah. don't have the ability to do everything that people um, need us to do. So we're we're slowly um, getting there, but but it's it's still not even close to what we need to be doing. No. So tell tell us about the programming. Um, what what does Resolve do? What resource does it offer for those who are searching for help? I start with community. We are the place for people who are struggling to build their family. Community to us means connecting with others. So we have 
over 250 support groups that meet every single month across the country. You can connect with people right in your community. We have a huge online support community. We have about 60,000 people who connect online every day. So you can connect there. You can come to one of our events and programs. We do walks of hope. Um, we have advocacy days. Um, we have a night of hope. There's opportunities for people to connect in their community with others. And certainly uh, we're on social media. It's a huge way for people. It's funny because we've got people who aren't even in our email database, but who are very active in our online, um, in our online community. And then we've got people who follow us on social media who don't even know we have an online support community. So it's, it's, it's not necessarily all the same people just touching us in different ways, but we've learned, you know, as any organization, you have to have many channels of, of people. Um, but the live support groups have not gone away despite all the growth of the internet and, and support there. In fact, we continue to grow um, our support groups. And, and so they are, and people tell us every day, you know, oh my gosh, this is my lifeline and I couldn't have gotten through this. So we know how vitally important that is. So support and community, um, first and foremost. Secondly, advocacy. We have uh, really um, been at the forefront of access to care and advocacy since, gosh, since uh, Maryland and Massachusetts passed their insurance laws, you know, over 30 years ago. And uh, we continue um, to be um, very, very active at the state and federal level. You know, we're, we're the only organization um, in the infertility space nationally doing that. We partner with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. They're very active as well with us. Um, and then we've been doing a lot with the Alliance for Fertility Preservation on um, helping people uh, with cancer and other conditions preserve um, their fertility. In fact, Resolve helped form a coalition yeah. about three years ago called the Coalition to Protect Parenthood um, After Cancer. So oh, wow. we're really proud of our the, any help that we can give there. I will note for listeners, if they haven't, if they haven't gone back to it, that we did have we do have an episode with Joyce Reinecke of the Alliance of Fertility Preservation. So she was oh, fantastic telling She's, telling her story and her organization as well. Yes. Yes. We've been working with Joyce for years, even when she was at Livestrong. And then, um, so you've got support and community, you've got access and advocacy, uh, you've got awareness. Resolve started something called National Infertility Awareness Week um, about 30 years ago. It's the only federally recognized health observance for infertility. That is uh, uh, the last full week in April. We are very proud of National Infertility Awareness Week. Um, you can check out, we have a website called infertilityawareness.org. It's just about National Infertility Awareness Week. And uh, I mean, organizations, clinics, you guys, people do all kinds of outreach and events. Uh, we have um, usually have a tremendous amount of national media attention and, um, and so on. So those are, those are sort of the key. Um, we have a, a great website. We still have a lot of patient education tools and resources. We do one live educational event. It's in Minnesota. Resolve New England does a live one in Boston. And, uh, and those are the two that are consistently um, held in the country. And, uh, and, you know, we're a resource for the media. Um, and then just whatever we can do. Um, I, I do a lot of international work with the World Health Organization. 
I um, I was part of a, a international group looking at research priorities in infertility. I've served on um, a special funding uh, grant making council at NIH. So what are, what are we, the research are, priorities for infertility? I'm curious. Well, I'm super excited because we announced it at the European um, Infer- uh, Reproductive uh, Medicine uh, Conference in June, and we announced um, in four key areas mm-hmm. what are the research priorities. And it's really interesting, be- and I'll, I can send you the information because there's 10 research priorities in four different categories. So there's a well, total of 40. And we can link it with the episode. So, so yes, tell us, but then we'll also send a link. We'll put a link with your episode so people can find this. Well, here's the, here's the really amazing thing. This had not been done before. So if you want to do any kind of clinical research, medical research, anything having to do with infertility, you can do it on whatever you want. But the community had never established priorities. And so, you know, honestly, we're kind of drowning in a lot of data that and, and research that may not necessarily be helpful to patients. So um, I was part of a process that we took us a couple of years and a really fascinating process of getting to um, those research priorities. We did multiple surveys across the globe. We had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of data points and then synthesizing it down into what are the top 10? And so it's in um, male, the four categories are male infertility, um, female infertility, unexplained, and then a category that was near and dear to my heart, which was access and policy. So we've got now um, very specific research parties. When we announced it at the Eshri meeting, we announced that the room was probably had like 400 people in it. And the response was just overwhelmingly fantastic. I mean, people were coming up to us and people got on the mic and said, and they were like, thank you, finally, (laughs) you know, and, and, uh, and it's a roadmap, right? And so now what happens is those research parties get um, sent to all the journals, the journal editors buy into it, fertility and sterility, human reproduction, Mm -hmm. they buy into it. And so now they are going to be looking at what comes into them um, in terms of, hey, we'll want to get something published, and they want to be able to say, we need to focus on these research priorities. Those are the those are the topics that we need to be publishing and talking about. Doesn't mean they're not going to publish about other things, but it's it just gets the whole community really focused on on key things. So clearly, I mean, what a, and I was the patient advocate voice on that international group. Um, so. Really um, honored to to have resolve a part of that, and then be able to be up on the stage giving those priorities at Eshri. I mean, that's the kind of thing Resolve is is the largest in the world in terms of patient advocacy in this space, and we um, we are very well respected across the globe, and um, and and we um, really seize those opportunities when we get a chance to participate. How Which does again, resolve... you think about the, the okay. budget? Sorry, okay. I was saying you think about the okay. budget, and you're trying to also do international stage as well. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know these 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 projects and entities get grant funding, and you know they're able to support financially support Resolve so that I can participate, and Resolve doesn't have to pay for that. And um, and so you know those are those are that's how things are done. And so it's really nice because it's not necessarily taking it out of our limited budget, but 
we do get a voice and we do get a chance to participate. You know, if I had to, if I had to you know, turn all these down because I, you know, I can't fly to so-and-so because I don't have the money, you know, that really hurts everybody. Um, we need to have our voice at the table and, uh, and, and I'm really honored that we are. How does Resolve navigate the more tricky and controversial areas of infertility and third-party treatment, um, given when you're, you're talking on a global level and working with different countries that, you know, here, surrogacy, egg and sperm and embryo donation are more common and accepted, while other countries are much more negative towards um, donations or surrogacy, especially? Well, interesting because I was invited to this international meeting on surrogacy um, that was held at Cambridge University also in June. And I, well, I was definitely, I was definitely the only person there representing an infertility organization because most of the people in the room were, were professionals. And so I think when, when I'm in settings like that and I've been at WHO meetings and so forth, there's already a knowledge that things are done differently in different countries. And I, I try and be sensitive to, to that and know that, you know, here in the U.S., we all have opportunities to learn. I don't come into a situation and say, hey, we're from the know-it-all country and you guys don't know what you're doing. <laughs> you have to come in saying, you know, this is, this is our situation. But as I know, as you all know, from the AXIS perspective, we're, we're way low. Yeah, and right. so, yeah, we're way behind there. so I'm not, I'm I you know, I have a lot to, we have a lot to learn from other countries and they recognize that the way insurance is delivered in the U S is very different and that that has, is hurting our community. Um, and so, um, you know, every country has quote unquote controversial things that, that are happening in, in this space. Um, you know, I, I really just try and focus on the community I serve and people who want to build their family and how do we ensure that uh, they get access, that they're getting, you know, safe and effective treatment. And that if we're talking about regulation, what is the goal of it? Is it providing more access and a, and a safer and a better outcome? Or is it just bureaucratic uh, paperwork that is is really about another agenda? You know, I oftentimes look at, 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 regulation or talk of regulation and say, is this going to provide a better outcome? Is this going to be safer for patients? And those are the kinds of questions you have to ask yourself. But, um, you know, I, I feel like uh, there's, a, there's an understanding of what happens in the U.S. and uh, in this space. And, um, and I, I had, it hasn't really presented a problem when I am traveling or speaking at these meetings. That's good. What are your hopes and dreams for kind of the next year or more to five years, who knows, to come? Like, what do you see likely as progress and what, what kind of are you really reaching for? Well, we'd like to get to a place where companies that want to do the right thing by their employees and want to have good benefits are doing that. We want to be the resource where they can find out what that looks like and make it very turnkey for companies to get educated, get informed, um, and add that. I think we're going to, despite all of our efforts on the legislative front, I think we're actually going to cover more lives by uh, the self-insured employers, and we need to do a better job. We haven't done enough to help 
those benefits folks at those companies. And so that's that's part of what we're doing with the funding from ASRM is we've hired somebody uh, to manage that program um, that really works with employers. And we need to, to really build up our resources there. So I'd love to see us in a year, two, three, four years be talking about millions of lives covered voluntarily by employers and, uh, and, and it's good coverage. So that's number one. You know, clearly we, we need more people to know about Resolve earlier in their journey. We are, we're not the organization anymore just when you're in crisis. We can provide a great deal of guidance and help when you start your journey. So I, I'd like to see that um, that happen. Yeah, and, and I'd like to see us uh, get to the point where um, building your family uh, through assisted reproduction, uh, through adoption is, um, is really uh, the, is, is, is viewed as a normative way to build your family. And we are not having people still feeling isolated and uh, alone and, and not knowing people who've, who've gone through the same thing. And, and so those are just some of our, some of my hopes and dreams and certainly yeah. some of the things that I, I think we as an organization are working towards. Yeah. And can you tell us, I don't know if you know this at the top of your head, kind of what some of the numbers are now. So aside from only having 20 cents per per person to help, what what is the percentage of people who do have some kind of coverage or benefits that can help them if they're facing infertility? Well, it's a very good question. It sounds like a very logical question, but it, it's how the question has been asked and who it's been asked of. So mm-hmm. we oftentimes see studies, HR, benefit consultant, you know, you see a Mercer study or whatever, and they'll use the term infertility services. Mm-hmm. And do it's oftentimes a do you have infertility benefits, yes or no kind of a thing. As okay. you and I all know, there there's a wide spectrum of what that looks like. And yeah. so oftentimes you see the checkbox, yes. So, you know, we're probably getting to, you know, 30, 40% of self-insured companies checking the box, yes, maybe even a little bit higher. But when it comes right down to it, what is it? Is it is it a $10,000 lifetime? Is mm-hmm. it truly IVF coverage? Is it surrogacy? Does it cover donor egg? What does it cover? <laughs> and getting to the bottom of that is impossible. Oh. So if I if if you see a study and it says, "Wow, we've really made progress," I want to. It's that's a quantitative point. I want to look at the mm-hmm. qualitative data and say, "What is the actual benefit, and is it really helping people?" Yeah. So we don't know that. We don't know that, and we are going to at Resolve. We are committed to doing a better job of even connecting with the people who use our resources because we have a toolkit for how to do this in your company. But mm-hmm. we have not done a great job of saying, hey, call us back and tell us what happened. So <laughs> so we're doing that now. Um, and we also need to provide um, a roadmap, a better roadmap for the employers because they're calling us and and major Fortune 500 companies are calling us saying, hey, I've got my, I've got my you know, buy-in from my C-suite and our employees want this, but what do I do? Right. And we haven't gotten there yet. And so mm. with organizations like ARDA and, and, um, and, and ASRM and others, we want to get to that point where 
we can lay out some really strong, you know, benefits for all the different ways that people should build their family and put it out there and say, you know what, you want to know what good looks like? Here's great. And we have it. So that's another thing that we're working on. That's great. What can what can listeners do to support Resolve in your mission? Aside from throwing money at you, which we'd all love to <laughs> which do. Which we all encourage, yeah. <laughs> I think I think that I think that just letting, you know, making sure people are connecting with us. If you're somebody who's listening to this and you've gone through infertility, maybe you still have a relationship with your doc or whatever, you know, tell them, hey. Uh, you know, it's important to me that this this organization exists. I hope you support them. Uh, we'd like to we'd like to hear that. Get involved. There's a lot of ways that if you've resolved um, your infertility or you're a professional, we'd love to have you at Advocacy Day in Washington D.C. We'd love to have you doing something for National Infertility Awareness Week. Um, you know, these are these are things that we're not getting money from you for. These are things that we need you to show up and show the strength of our community. And, uh, and we need people, more people speaking out locally, um, statewide. And I think there's a, there's a lot more that we can be doing if, um, if we have those collective voices, both professional, provider, and patient. And, and Barb, I want to kind of, if I can loop back on something just to kind of impress on people out there, that something when, I, even right before when I, I, I came to Advocacy Day this last year, and I said, I said to somebody, and this really struck me, I said, well, my story, I, I have my child. I got to the end of my story. I'm not sure that my story counts anymore. And somebody pointed out to me that your story always still counts. Even if you are resolved, somebody else there may need to hear that story and that you made it through it. And so it's really important that even if you are, and if you are still passionate about it, to come back around and be involved in those organizations and still it your voice still is very important even if you are on the in other fact, side of things. I don't know that I could have done what I asked people to do now when I was right in the middle of my treatment and I told you I needed to kind of like turn a corner and get in a better place emotionally and then I felt like I could have those conversations. So we need people who are resolved and we need people who are in a good place because you need to be there to speak for all of those who just aren't in a place where they can. And so I, and that, you know, look, somebody is being told right now that they are not going to be able to have a child naturally through their own reproductive system. Something is medically wrong with themselves or their spouse or their partner or you know, they, they, they are realizing they need surrogacy or they need donor egg or they need medical treatment or they need to consider another route to parenthood. And that's happening right now. And so what we do is, is impacting them and their journey. It's, it's that, you know, that phrase, pay it forward. Well, this is, this is even more so because no one is prepared for that conversation that they're having today. Look, I just had a DC Walk of Hope last weekend. Why would they have even known about that and come? Because they weren't part of our community. And so it's it's this is a situation where each and every day more and more people are coming into our community and we have to keep moving forward because the status quo is not acceptable. And I can't look people in the face five years from now and say, oh, you know, we really, you know, we could have done a lot of things, but the situation really hasn't changed very much. 
that's not who we are and we've got to change the status quo. So for the person diagnosed today, I hope to God they can say they had a better journey because Resolve was there and Resolve paved the way. But they need to find us and we're, we need more people letting, letting others know about us. So thank you for having me and thank you for even talking about this thank because you. you're doing such oh a God, great job so of, of educating and, and raising awareness and that's what we need. Oh, thank you so much, Barb. We appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks, Barb, for being such an amazing resource for all of those throughout the country going through infertility. Um, we really appreciate you telling us about all these different programs and the ways that you're supporting um, various individuals going through this. And I just think this this has been a great a great resource itself for the podcast for people to hear, you know, about the support groups and about the advocacy and all that can be done. So, so huge shout out for all that hard work you're doing. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we have to advocate for ourselves, right? Uh, <laughs> do you like, do I keep bringing my pun? I'm going to bring back the puns yes. one day, one day. Nice. Um, yeah, no, but we, in our own advocacy, if we advocate for ourselves to please go to iTunes, leave us a review. We love that. Um, but actually more than that, self-advocate for yourself and reach out to us. Um, please give us a call at 303-997-1903. We love to hear from people who listen to the show and their thoughts. Um, people send us emails, which we also really adore. So please keep reaching out. And as always, huge, huge, huge thank you to Chris at Work at Bridge Studios, who makes us sound awesome. Yes. To we have Tyler, because I'm have, not going to forget to say thank you to Tyler this time. We have words of affirmation for them. You guys are Absolutely. great. You guys are Doing awesome. A good job. And we love you. And you are fantastic. Yes. As um, but well as Amanda and Amanda Ashley. And Lexi. And Lexi. And Lexi. Because all of them, they, our, our mm-hmm. team is phenomenal and, and we love every one of them. So thank you to all and thank you to everybody for listening to us. 